This song is not a rebel song. Shall we play a game? I am Sammy Daddy. Many students were killed. Feel right now. I'm very angry. He were rather the poor were poorer, yeah, yeah. provided the rich were less rich. Naughty, naughty. We like the party. Automobile. Oh, Rick, to think that I may never see you again. I think you did it on purpose because you know I've got a runny bottom. I'm Kurt Loder. This is MTV News. Justin, Justin. But this is Miami, pal. I'm not going with that. Let's have a Play-Doh party. Yeah. Uh, show me wax on. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. On this fluorescent decade on a hill edition of In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, we're going to be discussing the book Ready Player One by Ernest Klein. I've been wanting to highlight the book for a while now, and since the film adaptation is coming out the weekend I record this, now seems as perfect time as any. To give you a little bit of a backdrop about the book, the author Ernest Klein is a geek's geek, having wrote the screenplay to the film Fanboys and also an unofficial novel, or fanfiction if you will, sequel to Buckaroo Banzai, among other like-minded nerdy endeavors. As regards the plot, it is this. In the future, everything is bleak and wrecked, and so most people live mentally in a virtual reality universe called the Oasis. The universe was designed by a billionaire named James Holliday, and it reflects the best things of his late 1970s, all-1980s youth. One can visit worlds resembling and incorporating film, video games, songs, and other imaginative creations from the era, including Blade Runner, Zork, Dungeons & Dragons, John Hughes films, Devo, and so on. Well, Mr. Holiday dies and leaves behind a message that within the Oasis is hidden three keys, and whoever finds all three will inherit not only his wealth, but will be able to control the virtual reality he has created as well. And so the race is on. The story chiefly focusing on a teenager named Wade Watts, his two virtual friends, Artemis and H., and their chief rivals, a corporation called IOI. Regarding my own thoughts on the book, first of all, the title, if you didn't know, Ready Player One, refers to the greeting that met our eyes on the video screens of most of those early arcade games. There was so much excitement and promise in those days for kids like myself when we saw those letters pop up after the machine had swallowed our quarter. Physical strength counted for nothing at the consoles and weaklings like myself could be the hero if we reacted quick enough and observed the patterns our digital foes were sometimes slaves to. It was a preliminary taste of the tech age to come where geeks would get paid more than the jocks and actually had a good chance of stealing their cheerleader girlfriends. So it's no understatement that Klein's choice for a title is a bit of a bat signal to a generation of misfits and wannabe warriors. And just as that association is glowing behind those three words, the storyline of Zero to Hero scrolls along the book's path. I myself love the book chiefly because of the prospect that one day I could, in a virtual way, revisit the touch, smell, and wonder of my youth. If I were allowed to go to a planet where the United States of America roller rink of 1980s Evansville, Indiana resided, I would take in all the things I still remember. That odd smell of cotton candy, cooking nacho cheese and old carpet, the new synthesized sounds the DJ was pushing through the speakers, and the spinning neon translucent wheels that were for sale at the skate shop. 
I would also revel in all the things I missed the first time around. Because I had surrendered myself to a lot of fear back in those days, I would have talked to the kid wearing the concert shirt of the band I'd never heard of. I would have not pretended to not have known my little sisters while they were trying to tell me about whatever they were excited about. And to the couple of bullies that always slammed me into the cement block wall, I would have asked who had bullied them first. And instead of just skating in the candy-flavored wake of the pretty girl wearing the bandanas on her ankles and the banana clip in her hair, I would have at least tried to speak to her instead of just rolling outside of her peripheral vision. Of course, most humans feel some such similar longing, regardless of when they were young, especially as I realize their life is probably half over, wishing they could return to the more simple and hopeful times. James Holiday had the money and know-how to make that wishing into reality, of the senses at least, and it's very possible, the way things are going technologically these days, that an Oasis-like program will be made available to us. And of course, there's a great folly in always looking back and longing for a place we can't possibly return to, which Klein eventually addresses in the book. But for now, let's not be wise and live in this wonderful no place. Okay, enough of my drivel. Let's hear some of my friends' thoughts on the book. It's a death party. Who could ask for more? I love the book. First of all, I like the fact that it's written by an actual geek, like author. I love the fact that the the CD and the other version are narrated by Will Wheaton. The main character is one I think that actually most gamers can identify with because a lot of people who played games did it to escape the regular kind of people around them who didn't get it or a lot of people who did were like picked on or bothered or you know they were seen as the nerdy character and so games where they're out a big part of the book the draw to the book is the nostalgia that we feel for the things that we grew up with and are familiar with and have love for um, we see those things and if we had a decent childhood um, it reminds us of that and for some people who didn't have a nice childhood, some of those things may be the only things they remember that were good. People found comfort sitting around watching Family Ties because their their family life sucks so bad. Then you'll join us. Monopoly? Are you kidding me? I'd love a game. Uh, I, I thought you had a lot of work to do. Well, Dad, I was thinking, you know, term papers and exams come and go, but the family unit is the one true constant in life. The precious hours spent in the familiar abode with loved ones playing a heartwarming game such as this are, are what make memories that one can treasure for all eternity. <laughs> when did all that occur to you? As I was coming down the stairs. <laughs> I was surprised because my husband didn't think I was going to like this book. He'd had it on his desk for like a year. And I finally decided, okay, I'm just going to sit down and read it. And I loved it. So what was his thinking? He thought, well, I wasn't a gamer, and so I wouldn't get anything out of it. That's not but the whole I, thing. But I grew up in the 80s, and right. so, and I liked it. I, I really enjoyed the story itself. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed the, the sort of interchangeable characters, mm-hmm. because you've got the, the online characters, and then you have the actual bodies. Mm-hmm. That idea of him, um, once he's escaped from the stacks, and he's rented his apartment and he's, he's made it secure and there's no human interaction. Uh-huh. And you know, he's got his suit on and he's got to you know, exercise so much and then you know, he's trying to not be a fat sack. Mm-hmm. Like that was the scariest part of the book mm-hmm. is that that's a feature that I can actually see. It's kind of here in some ways. Yeah, yeah, going to. And so maybe the idea of the oasis is a little terrifying because it means that we neglect what we have. 
there's no sunshine in this book. It's either outer space dark or it's video game interface in front of you glowing dark. I think that was the most disturbing part for sure. Don't you want to watch two things that are on at the same time? Well, now you can, because Sony's revolutionary Betamax deck, which hooks up to any TV set, can actually videotape something off one channel while you're watching another channel. I didn't actually read it. I listened to the audiobook narrated by Will Will Wheaton <laughs> of uh, Star Trek fame. Which is funny to me because uh, I always hated his character on Star Trek. I listened to the audiobook as well, and it kind of redeemed him for me a little bit. I came out of not hating Wesley Crusher. I mean, I, <laughs> I think I was about Wesley's age around the time of Wesley's heyday, you know, and, and there were certain arcs with him that I enjoyed. This is becoming a tangent into no, the character of Wesley Crusher and why some people hate him, why some people don't. I went into it just concerned about whether or not I'm going to uh, be able to just sync up with his read. Um, I'm, I'm pretty particular about voiceover work and, mm -hmm. you know, if I, I can usually tell within the first chapter if I'm going to be able to do this or not. Right. Um, but he was fine. I thought he did a pretty good job and, and I enjoyed it. He, it sucked me in. I felt like the first two chapters or so were really pretty strong as far as sucking a person in. I mean, if you if you get through the first two chapters and you're not into it, th this book's not going to work out for you at all. But once it's been revealed what the whole overall plot of the thing is going to be, that it's this gigantic Easter egg hunt, basically, and the prize is going to be uh, basically full control over this virtual world and a, a just ton of money, then... Uh, I was totally on board, you know, especially knowing that there were going to be lots of 80s references to games that I grew up with and movies and TV shows and all that good stuff. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a wholly remarkable book. The introduction starts like this. Space, it says, is big, really big. You just won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. I mean, you may think it's a long way down the street to the chemist, but that's just peanuts to space. Listen. And so on. I think we're going towards this. I, I think the virtual reality stuff. You hear about people now that become addicted to video games, and like especially online games, like this World of Warcraft and things like that where they don't leave the house. Mm. I mean, they're basically like shut-ins and stuff. Mm. And then, you know, the next, I'd say, five, six years, because they're working virtual reality hard right now. And I agree with you. But I also hold up that hope that, like, I, I know myself, like, uh, Facebook, I've gone on it maybe two or three times a day. I used to get on a whole lot. You feel empty. I I'd rather go talk to somebody. Right. Now, that may be because of our age group, but I feel like eventually... There's just going to be this day they're, they're going to put it down. Like the counterculture is going to be actually sitting in front of people and talking. You know, they're going to like, that's rebelling against Mark Zuckerberg. Suck it, Zuckerberg, you know. Right. And, and I think it's hard to beat human interaction in reality. But don't you see, too, with the virtual reality, that people get so sucked into this? Yeah. That the outside world just, they become like depressed what's going mm -hmm. on. They get sucked in this virtual world where they could be anybody. And Yeah, no doubt. I reference another book, Sisters of Glass, and I read this back in early 2000, but 
they had this problem with, they called them VR junkies, virtual reality junkies. These people like passed out in the alleys or whatever, and they end up hating the flesh because it's, they have to keep coming out of virtual reality to like use the bathroom or eat. And they hate their bodies because it, they're flawed or they're not attractive and they're not what they are in the virtual reality. And, mm-hmm. yeah, so I, I agree with you. I think it, it can happen, but I still think that humans, we go in the cyclical things, especially it has to do with age a lot. Do you feel in your old age you're starting to agree more with the old timers? That when we were young, the, the old people that we thought were not cool and they would talk about what's important in life were like, yeah, whatever. And now that you're getting that age, do you see yourself agreeing with what they had said? Let me answer that a different way, okay. if I can. Uh-huh. I feel sad for kids nowadays. And I think that's one of the reasons why I don't have children. Is that our culture has changed so much that kids just can't be innocent anymore. They just can't be kids. Like, I remember when I was in grade school, I was like maybe eight. I would get on my bicycle and ride all through the neighborhood. I would ride to this, remember the Lincoln grocery store Mm -hmm. down by uh, Oakdale? Mm -hmm. I mean, that was probably from my house, a two mile bike ride, you know, through streets and stuff with traffic and everything. And mom would give me a, a dollar and I'd get on my bike, maybe with some friends, maybe by myself, and head down to Lincoln and buy, uh, you know, a soda. I remember leaving in the morning, saying, see, Mom. Yeah. See, see you at supper time. And Mom had, most of the times, Mom had no idea where I was at. Right. No clue yeah. where I was at. And you were perfectly safe. Yeah. I, I know people have this argument whether it's things have gotten worse or are we just now more aware of it? And I would say it's a little both because there's always been an element of danger for kids. You know, even in Boonville, our hometown, like back in the 50s or 60s, there was a little girl who had been kidnapped and they found that she'd been molested by the yeah. by the gardener or something like that. But I don't think it was as rampant as it is now. And of course, you know, most of my jobs I've had has been in the computer industry and I live, you know, on the internet and stuff. And I think it's great, mm-hmm. but I think it's done a lot to destroy our culture too mm-hmm. with all the stuff that kids can access online oh sure yeah. and especially with phones now mm-hmm. i mean I, I never go to the mall but i guarantee like if you know if we went on a friday or saturday night all the kids would be doing mm-hmm. you know looking down their phones instead of talking to their friends because i i've actually seen teenagers sit at a together none of them are talking to each other right. at all no right. conversations going on right but they're all on their phone that's why I think this virtuality stuff is going to really take off and really hurt our culture, hurt our society even more, mm-hmm. because the way the phones, how addictive these phones are now. I mean, can you imagine walking into a world that's just like almost real, mm-hmm. like it looks real, mm-hmm. and you can do whatever you want? In a way, it does reflect, if you look at like some of the stories like from Krill, like someone kills someone over giving a sword away and stuff, the fact that this this treasure involves people really killing each other over this, you know, is actually definitive of what some crazy levels people will take things. And you can see that in gaming today already, there are people who take it too far. I mean, they'll pay real money for all these things or they'll get mad at someone for giving up an item. It's just air. Mm-hmm. Unlike some of these like uh, online massive MMORPGs, which is kind of what the Oasis kind of is. My afterlife is so boring. If I 
have to sing Kumbaya one more time. Ready Player One reminded me of so many quirky cultural phenoms from those days. Many I had forgotten, some I still cherish. I was curious which ones hit close to my friends' own homes. I just, I absolutely adored all the 80s references. The ones that I got and then the ones that I had to look up later because I'm not a gamer. But I spent some time in, in the arcades, mm -hmm. uh, usually on first dates, sometimes on second dates. <laughs> um, well, explain that. Like going to the video arcade was a really interesting way to get to know somebody, um, especially if you were like playing a two-player game while the date was trying to beat the centipede or tempest or whatever, you could really look at their face. When you're 13 or 14, uh -huh. you don't get a chance to like really stare at the face that you've been crushing on, uh -huh. you know, unless you're glancing across classroom or something. And so that was always fun for me, having the opportunity to be that close to somebody's face uh -huh. and stare. I went to a prom, I dated this guy who went to an all-boys school. We went to his prom and then afterwards, I was like, I couldn't stand wearing this dress. So he took me home for a minute, changed into jeans and t-shirt, and we went to a video arcade. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, did you have a favorite game? I really did like Tempest. I liked the controller on that one. Uh, I think Shakespeare liked it, too, because he wrote a play <laughs> based, on, based on the yeah, title. Uh, yeah. That's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, when I was in San Francisco, I went to this museum called Musée de Mécanique or something like that, mm -hmm. and it was all these old coin-operated, not just games, but like uh, Nickelodeons oh, yeah. and dancing things, uh -huh. and they had like the cabinet game of Pong. Oh, yeah. They had a different name for it. Yeah. Most of the games I bought was kind of like shoot 'em up. Uh, I remember playing Pac-Man, of course. Do you remember that moment of getting Pac-Man home and putting it in? Do you remember that first moment of playing it? I don't. Because it Do was. You? I remember when I first saw it, I was like, ugh. I, I didn't have a Atari 2600, but I had friends that did. And I was expecting something from the arcade. And his mouth doesn't even quite open or close very well. Yeah, it wasn't as good as the arcade game. What was your favorite Atari 2600 game? Probably, I don't know, I really like Dig Dug. So the, their Atari version was pretty good? Yeah, it was pretty good. And then, of course, I remember probably the last game I bought, and this is probably before Atari went out of business, was uh, E.T. Did you I, like that game? No. Oh. It was horrible. Because <laughs> you could never tell where he was, uh. like where you were at in the game. Because you'd like fall through the screens. It made like absolutely no sense. <laughs> it didn't go f with the movie at all. I would say that Atari's games were just not that good quality, and there was better systems coming out, which brings me to a point I wanted to bring up, that we never had an Atari 2600, and we begged for one. In fact, I forgot about this, but me and my sisters were actually saving up money to buy our own, and we had about $30. I, I can't remember how much the system cost, but I would assume it would have been more than that. Oh, yeah. And my dad, one Christmas, we got our, opened our little gifts and things, and he had a suitcase, and he says, if you give me... All the money you guys have put together, 
I'll give you what's in the suitcase. And they're like, well, is it an Atari? He says, I can't tell you. <laughs> hey, we, me and my sisters had a, had a little conference where we're like, what do we do? You know, right. what if he's fooling with us? You know, we lose our money. And then I think probably my, my middle sister wisely said, he's our dad. He's not going <laughs> to rip us off. Right. <laughs> so we trusted him and we gave him the money. And we were quite disappointed initially because what was in the suitcase was actually an Intellivision. It was mm. a video game system. And it was not an Atari, so that's why we were so disappointed. But in time, we realized it was a superior, much, much better video game system. And knowing my dad, he's one of these people that before he buys anything, he researches it today. Right. And he probably knew little about video games, but had read a little bit about them and found this Intellivision was the best one. And he was right. Soon enough, you know, all the people had Ataris was, was over our house plan because it was just much, much, much better. And one of the games that I, even my mom played was is actually an official Dungeons and Dragons game, but it was just like you're moving a man around some tunnels right. and stuff and looking for treasure or what have you. They had a Tron game that I thought was great, too, at the time. Mm. I still remember that big Hulk thing, that, that big red, that thing coming out, and you have your little disc, and you're trying to take him out with your disc. If you don't hit him just right, just bounce off, you know, right. Frisbee. The Atari 26 game, Adventure, plays a bit of a role in this. The secret room that has a programmer's name in it, did you discover that on your own, or was that something kind of just legendary you knew about? It was something I heard about. However, my friend and I, when we played Atari many nights on the, on the weekends, we did actually go and spend like over an hour pulling that off to see it for ourselves. Mm -hmm. I've had a hard time on my own doing it, but yeah, we heard about it first. Okay. And then we went and tried to do it ourselves. And we, we spent a whole night making that the goal. I remember from the book, it was like a junkyard, like with cars and stuff. Was it like an old trailer or something? or? Yeah, it was like a van or, or something he had, it was broken down, but he had made a little home out of, or a little, yeah. like a man cave. Right. And, you know, that's where he had his computer equipment and stuff, and that's where, you know, he went during the day, just kind of escape everything. Of course, that's where he went to school. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it was just a little hideout that no one, I don't think anyone knew about. When I thought about that, it just reminded me of a treehouse that my dad had built. And he had gotten wood from an old barn. And it was like in a corner of our, our lawn, where we kind of a wooded area back there. And he built this treehouse. And it had steps and stuff. and had a porch. Really? Yeah. And it had windows that you could uh, swing up and use a board to open them up. And uh, it was just really cool to hang out in. So did you go up there and read or just yeah, be by read, yourself? Yeah, just be by myself and read and stuff. And, and your sister never went up there too much? Uh, yeah, we went up there quite a bit. It was like having our own house. Were you an introvert back then? Yeah. Oh, big time. Okay. Like I've always been that way. And that was kind of where you could escape mm -hmm. in some ways? Yeah. yeah. Now, I know you couldn't have your computer up there, right? No, no. There was no electricity. Do you feel like when you got your computer, your first computer was what, the Commodore 64? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That became your new treehouse? Oh, way? yeah. I did have like a really big room. So to have the desk and stuff in there for it, there was no room in my room. So we had it down in the basement, and that's where I would sit. 
and I'd have the lights off all the time, and Mom would call me Dungeon Master. <laughs> you were playing games and things? Oh, playing games, writing games. What games uh, do you play, do you remember? A lot of the games that I played was, I, I can't even remember the name of the magazine, but everything was in, uh, I believe it was assembly language, and it had all the code, and you could sit there and write the code yourself, and just all these little games that you could play, and it was just amazing the kind of games, like the detail they would have in these games. Yeah, I did the same thing. I had Apple, too. And, yeah, there was some magazine. You, if you took the time to type out all the code, yep. that you could get a game out of, a free oh, game. Yeah. You're 46 years old, right? Mm -hmm. And I look, and you pretty much still have your treehouse, your dungeon here. you got yeah. some, three screens. Right. How many computers you got? Let's see. I've got my PC, Alienware. I just bought it. I've got an Asus laptop. I've got an iPad. Of course, phone. And that's a little computer now. Right. Let the Radio Shack TRS-80 put the world of color computing into your home. Instant loading program packs turn any color TV into an exciting game arcade. Ah! And there's more. About the TRS-80s. Yeah, the Trash 80s. Trash 80s. It was a Radio Shack brand. They were probably too expensive to own in your house, I think. Mm -hmm. So we had them, we were supposed to have them in school. And our teacher that we had, Mr. Long, had them, and he was really proud of this, he had them networked together. And what you had to do is, they were all daisy-chained to each other. So you had to boot them up one at a time, you know, in order. And if you broke that sequence or whatever, the network would go down, it wouldn't work. I remember the start of the class we'd have, that would be the process. Get one up and running. Uh -huh. Someone would tell, okay, now boot yours. And just, Man. you know, it'd be, I don't know, 15 computers that you'd have to boot in sequence. The thing I remember the most about those things was there was an orange button that turned them off or on, I guess. Yeah. It was really pretty much like the, the button that, that launches a nuclear war in a way because if you're working on something and some punk comes behind you and pushes that button, you've lost everything. Oh, yeah. And they, it happened to me a couple times. Yeah, it had like a mechanical keyboard. It was really clicky. It was really noisy. All right. Yeah, Radio Shack is a weird place because a lot of people swore by that, but it, was, it wasn't it was as good as that you would think it would have been. No, no. But a lot of people were really loyal to that place. Oh, yeah. I think most of it was like people get into electronics and stuff. The ham radio crowd. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I mean, I remember going there and buying little circuit boards. And, you know, you could set these little circuit boards up in a certain way to make a light turn on or something. Yeah. Or something silly, you know. Yeah. Like but a little I mean, LED display. I'm sure it would be the ground, laying the groundwork for to, to go with something a little bigger. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. That's, That's cool. where a lot of nerds got their start. with most of the stuff that he mentioned you know my first uh, gaming console was an atari 2600 so the second he mentioned that as being um holiday's first console as soon as he mentioned that i was like yeah i'm on board with that there are a few games that he mentions that i'm not familiar with but uh, most of it i'm i'm pretty well familiar with i'm not a huge rush fan but um <laughs> I like some of their tracks, you know, but I don't like, I'm not going to sit down and listen to an entire Rush album. I'm just not into it. From a writer point of view, those guys are just pure mining gold because they're talking about planets and histories and all kinds of things that you could mine from to 
uh, creative. Yeah, they've got they've got a bit of sci-fi, they've got a bit of fantasy, they've got some wackadoo stuff in there. I think that it was geared towards kids who were older than I was back in the day. Rush was a little bit too complicated mm-hmm. for me to handle musically. You know, like the lyrics and stuff, I didn't really know what they were talking about. I I remember some of the grooves, because they've got some really heavy, sweet grooves, and great guitar work, and just some really intricate stuff going on. Much of what Ernest Cline draws from his childhood reflects a lot of my own, although not entirely. I know that if I had written Ready Player One, the anime series Robotech would have played a major role, where not only would Wade Watts fulfill my fantasy of trying to help fight the Zentradi and inquire the protoculture, but I might have had him tell Rick Hunter that Minmay was cute but a tease, and also sang off-key. Anyway, I was curious what my friends would have added to the book if Klein had been drawn from their retro experiences. Depeche Mode. Depeche Mode. <laughs> yeah, for sure. any of that new type of glam rock mm-hmm. uh, and i hate even calling it glam rock because i think glam rock proper I, I think of stuff like um t-rex mm-hmm. and um you know david bowie and that sort of thing and uh, um roxy music you know i don't think of poison or or was it britney fox those are iconic things uh from the the late 80s that didn't get touched at all like the book yeah, and honestly, I would probably leave that bit out anyway. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think we need a planet dedicated to poison <laughs> or, you know, planet save the week. I think I would have picked some different ones, but I'd like his choices. Mm-hmm. I probably would have done some more obscure references to, like, uh, Fine Young Cannibals and stuff. You were a big fan? Big, I, that's all my favorite bands. Okay. I'd put like Journey, more things that tied into that, music-wise, and I'd probably have picked some different TV and media as my tie-ins. I would have put Transformers. I'll Transformers in. Transformers, more than meets the eye. Autobots wage their battle to destroy the evil forces of the Decepticons. As far as stuff that I would have loved to have hung out in, uh, maybe Beastmaster Planet, you know, oh, yeah. that sort of thing, or just some movies that I liked. And I think he did reference Beastmaster in the book, so. It was foretold by witches. It was conceived through sorcery. And it was to be destroyed by all that is evil. It all makes sense in the context of the book because the, the whole... Everyone's fixation is on things that James Holiday wrote about in his almanac. That's what the whole thing is. And, and all of those things are stemming from things that the author, Ernest Klein likes. He basically put himself into this guy. What are, what are all of his favorite things? That's what he's throwing in there. So, so you know, I'm not going to get upset because he left out something that I liked that maybe he didn't like. I don't really care. He was the beast master. And as much as we loved the book, there were a few criticisms or weaknesses that were observed. I don't think kids like now, like if I gave this to my nephew mm. in four years, I don't think he'd like it. 
because he doesn't know about the right. 80s culture and stuff. And... If I were to kind of pull the book apart and talk about the book, uh, its strong points and its weak points, its relationship stuff, that matter is not very well done. You know, it's not very interesting. His relationship with Artemis is, it starts off kind of interesting, but then once it gets to level two, which I guess is like at the midway point of the book, she just sucks. It's after he moves because they blow up his home. Uh, he moves all the way to, I think, Columbus, Ohio, and she's just being horrible. And it makes no sense at all, right? I want to get this up front. Ernest Klein is not an amazing writer, right? He's not going where no one's gone before as far as literature is concerned. You know, his prose style and all of that stuff. But, and also to that point, if you stripped away all of the pop culture references and just looked at it as a series of actions and interactions uh, and character, kind of character arcs and all that stuff, it's not a very good book. It's kind of classic the world sucks and some people are trying to make it suck even worse, you know, take the <laughs> last great things and turn them into something that's really horrid. And so some a ragtag band of misfits are going to get together and they're going to like over, overthrow the, the bad guys and, and all that stuff, you know, and the interactions just aren't that interesting. Mm -hmm. The love interest stuff is super poor and made no sense. That, that's the thing that I have the most beef with. Before they blow up his stuff, he's been having nice little chats with Artemis, and they're on pretty good terms. They blow up his stuff, and they have a big meeting with the top five people on the, the leaderboard, uh, the scoreboard. And after that, for whatever reason, she starts treating him like crap. Uh, and it doesn't make any sense, because it's like she lost all sympathy for him that he just lost his family and his home. Like, where did that go? They were friends. He just lost everything and had to move. And suddenly she's like, I don't want to talk to you and all this stuff. It makes zero sense, mm -hmm. right? No one would be that crappy. And the low points in the book, it, it just, there's a huge kind of boring area of the book where they're not really trying to find more clues, not really trying to find the keys, and they're just kind of having a relationship. And it's like the relationship building part of it. Mm -hmm. I remember that just dragging on and being boring. And it was equally boring to this whole her giving him the cold shoulder thing. Matthew Broderick, a pickpocket who thought that anything was better than prison. Little did he know what he'd escaped from wasn't half as strange or frightening as what he'd stumbled into. character is talking about how much time he spent watching and playing uh, and listening to he's like listen to all these catalogs of music from the 80s he's watched all of these film and tv shows from the 80s like every episode from all of these different series and played through all of these games many of them multiple times uh, but he's also going to school five days a week yeah and I really don't think in the amount of time since from when the, the actual Easter egg hunt is announced, which is when all of this stuff begins, because nobody was into any of the 80s stuff until that happened, as far as like mass appeal, 
to the point in the book where he's mentioning all this stuff, I don't think it's possible for him to have gone through all of it. I remember thinking the same thing, like, that would just be maddening. Like, when would you sleep? Yeah, you wouldn't. Even if you did it 24-7, you couldn't pack all of it in. I would be curious to see if anyone's done a breakdown taking all of the references that Wade Watts, the main character, says that he has played and tried to figure out how much time it would take to go through all this stuff. So he talks about war games and mentions he's seen it like at least a dozen times. He's seen it so many times he knows all the dialogue verbatim. To get to the first gate, he has to beat uh, Dungeons and what Dungeons of Daggerath on a TRS-80, right? And then that opens a portal or a gate, basically. He goes into the gate, and then he has to play a war game's flick sync where he's put into the main character's position, has to go through the entire movie shouting out all the lines and doing all the physical actions and all that stuff in order to actually clear the first gate. Yes, they do. How can I talk? It's not a real voice. Uh, this box just interprets signals from the computer and turns them into sound. Shall we play a game? Oh. I would love that there was more of a, a documentary about Ernest Klein and writing this book and using that to explain or, or show just little bits and pieces of some of the things he references, which I've never heard of. That would be cool, <clears throat> I think. That would almost be more interesting than the theatrical release, I think. I mean, some of the things that happened really aren't that interesting. Like the Crystal Key, there's like a Rush reference to mm -hmm. something on the 2112 album. Mm -hmm. And that happens after he clears Black Tiger, the game. And it's got some lyrics from it that leads to another planet. And he takes a 74 Les Paul and puts it onto the altar of a temple uh, <laughs> that's named based on something mentioned in that Rush album. Right. That's not going to work in a movie. Right. I'm already bored looking at that because I don't give a shit about Rush. I don't, 74 Les Paul, it's, it's just a nice guitar, but I don't care. The yeah. Black Tiger, I've never heard of it. It's a game. I, I've looked at it. It sucks. You know, I don't want to play <laughs> it. So I certainly don't want to watch it. And lastly, some predictions about the movie adaptation and general final thoughts. But can you properly do a movie that works really well where there's a sequence that lasts five minutes or so where people are, are watching episodes of a TV show, a really old TV show, and that's like part of the plot? I don't know. I, I think that a lot of that stuff's going to get changed. My name's Wade Watts. My dad picked that name because it sounded like a superhero's alter ego, like Peter Parker or Bruce Banner. But he died when I was a kid. My mom too. It's going to be interesting because the film has to be geared towards a wide audience. Uh, and I'm curious about how people who did not grow up in the late 70s and the 80s react to the book. People who aren't familiar with Ikari Warriors or... Um, Atari 2600 games or anything like that, how do they react to something where so much of the action, especially in the first half to the first you know, two-thirds or so, so much of the action is around these old games. You know, he's, he's playing old games, but he's got to play a lich in Joust in order to get the first key. They're going to change that in the movie. It, they made it really obvious in the trailer, the first trailer that came out. I think you see this kind of big race going on, and it starts to look like Mario Kart or something. If you look up on one of the LED panels up on the side, it says blah, 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 something for the copper key. 
So they have completely changed what's going to be done in order to get the Copper Key and turned it from going through a Dungeons and Dragons module called Tomb of Horrors and then beating a Lich in a game of Joust, which I think is freaking awesome, to a big giant balls-to-the-wall race with everybody in all these different cars, many of which are from movies that where Warner Brothers probably owns the property rights or Amblin. And that, in the end, if there was one takeaway from this chat that we're having, it's that they will absolutely be changing a lot of the references from the book to make them fit what they can afford, what they already own, or what they can afford to pay for as far as uh, uh, licensing. It'd be interesting because, I mean, there's kind of an 80s revival anyway. or It's been going on for a few years. Yeah, I know a handful of people that weren't even born in the 80s, and that's their thing. I'll follow their accounts on Instagram or something, and they're just kids who weren't even alive, and they're just discovering this stuff for the first time. And to them, it's super cool. I'm curious if Ready Player One, the film, does well enough, will it spawn a bigger return to that? See more things like um, Stranger Things or... Yes. There's gonna be a fixation the 80s has iconic stuff just as the 60s did and we went through a big kind of 60s phase many years ago yeah. where tie-dyed stuff was all over the place and people were dressing up as hippies and crap for the <laughs> Halloween and now it's, it's so passe it's right. to dress up as a, a classic hippie type uh, thing for Halloween. <laughs> Nobody does that. One big difference between the book and the movie is the unveiling of H's true identity. H is the best friend of the main character, Wade Watts, but he knows this person as a male, a white male character avatar Mm -hmm. uh, with the name uh, H. Um, Her real name is Helen something or other, but he doesn't know that. He doesn't know it's a, a female. She's a black gal. And in the book, she's like a heavy set. Actually, I think overweight. I can't remember which term they used, but she's a big girl, and she chose a a white male avatar because of the way she knew she would get treated, even in the virtual world, using an avatar that looked more like herself. I got really teary-eyed during that scene when they have the big reveal because he's never seen her. It's his best friend in the whole world, never physically met this person and he finally does she's completely unlike what he would ever imagine you know he was looking for this white dude and it's a big black girl (laughs) and and she's a lesbian right i thought that was so awesome and it's true there is still racism even in the virtual world it sucks you i don't know if you and i have talked about this but i spent time like in rec room playing in virtual communities and i've had stuff happen in there that makes me just sick People bring all of the crap from the real world into the virtual world. All their stupid stuff. Like for something like Rec Room, which is, if, if you don't know, it's a, it's a really cool online community, a, a VR community. But there's a lot to do in there. You can have a lot of fun. It's a blast. I had a blast playing it. But early on, I made my avatar black. I did it for a reason. I wanted to know who the asshole in the room was, and it worked. And they had to integrate ways to silence other people and, and flag them as being jerks. 
they, Rec Room has worked on that. They did a really great job. You basically do a talk to the hand gesture. You hold your hand up and cover that person's face from your point of view, and it flags them, and then you can go in and give a more detailed description of what the person's doing that's inappropriate. But they've had to integrate that stuff in there because people are getting like sexually harassed, racially harassed. Well, we're pretty much at the game over point. Regardless if Steven Spielberg's treatment of Ready Player One is great or thin, I highly recommend the book at least. And if they ever get this Oasis thing off the ground, maybe I'll run into your avatar on Planet Brittany Fox. I want to thank my contributors, Terrence Boyce, Sanshira Hanafusa, Shana Konstan, and Mac Daddy McWilliams. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram by searching for Spun Counter Guy. You can send us an email via SpunCounterGuy at Hotmail.com. The podcast is also hosted on iTunes and Podbean.com. Peace and chicken grease! <laughs>